reminder, uh, this is actually the last Sunday that Dan and his family away. They are actually back from vacation. Um, from all accounts, it went well, but fast, like most vacations do. But uh, Dan and his family are actually up in New York um, this weekend. Dan is preaching at a uh, what, what actually began as a uh, Chinese-American confer- uh, conference um, back in the 70s. And it's grown to about 400 people. It's expanded a little bit in its scope. But um, I don't know about you guys. To me, that's just a real honor that, that Dan gets asked. And he, this, he, he turns down a ton of speaking engagements. Um, people just want to have him bring the word there like, like he does here. So you can just keep him in your prayers um, this weekend. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Jeff Elkins. He's going to be our guest uh, pastor today, guest speaker. Jeff grew up in inner city New Orleans. He attended Baylor University and Truett Seminary, and he and his family moved to Baltimore in 2005. He's worked in churches as a pastor for the last 12 years and is currently serving as the director of programs for the Araminta Freedom Initiative, which is an organization seeking to end domestic minor sex trafficking in Baltimore. So if you want to join me in welcoming Pastor Jeff. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Thanks for letting me be here with you today. Um, I'm really excited, actually, because I, I got to know Dan when um, y'all were just launching. I was starting uh, a different kind of church on the east side of the city, and he and I got put into this kind of cohort of guys starting new things together. And um, yeah, so I've been following you for uh, just kind of through stories and through knowing Dan for a while, and it's fantastic to be here and see you. And um, yeah, so thank you for letting me come and speak to you today. Today, we're going to talk about Amos. Um, Amos lived in a very unique time. If you want to grab your Bible, Amos's book in your pew Bible is on page 649. So if you want to grab your pew Bible and look along, you can. But let me give you a rundown of who Amos was. So for those of you um, who aren't complete uh, history nerds like myself, Let me give you a really fast 30 seconds in Old Testament history, just so you can place Amos in the story. Because, you know, the Bible's one big story from Genesis to the end of Revelation. And if we're going to read a chapter in the middle, we should know what came before and after. So Genesis chapter 12, God grabs a guy named Abraham and says, Abraham, through my relationship with you and your family, the entire world is going to be reconciled to me, or they're going to be made right, or our relationship that is broken is going to be fixed. So the book of Genesis, we see Abraham's family grow and mature in their relationship with God. And then the book of Exodus, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. Moses brings them out of slavery in Egypt. I told you we were going to move fast. Moses brings them out of slavery in Egypt. And then Joshua takes them to the promised land. And then after Joshua, they live in this period where everybody is supposed to be just directly listening to God, and they're kind of in these tribes, and things get weird because nobody's listening to God, and it all goes bad. That's the book of Judges. And then at the end of the book of Judges, the people cry out and say, we need a king. We want to be like everybody else. We'll look like everybody else. So we need a king that's going to treat the people of God like everybody else. So God gives them King Saul. King Saul, abysmal failure. After King Saul, God gives them King David. King David's great. Builds a nation. Wins lots of wars, lots of property. Everybody's happy. David's son is Solomon. Solomon kind of drifts away from God a little bit, but also very wise and makes tons and tons of money, which again makes everybody happy. Solomon's son is Rehoboam. Rehoboam, not as wise as his father, not as charismatic as his grandfather. Rehoboam causes a civil war. And the people of God break into two different countries, right? In the south, you have Judah In the north, 
you have Israel. And then they get kind of comfortable. And in their comfort, they slowly start forgetting about their relationship with God. And so God, to call the people back to himself, starts calling out men like Amos. Amos is a farmer. He's a rancher. He watches over large flocks of sheep in the south. He doesn't, he's very reluctant. He's not real excited about having this mantle as this guy that speaks for God. But God calls him and compels him. We don't know how. We don't know what happened. All we know is that one day Amos finds himself in the northern kingdom. And he takes this box, is the image we're given from his book, and puts a box in the middle of the town square and stands up on it and says, Everybody listen to me! The northern kingdom's name was Israel, and they were proud of who they were, and they were proud of their nation. And everybody turns to listen to the crazy guy with the southern accent standing on a box. And Amos starts in chapter 1, and he says, For three transgressions, or for three sins of Damascus, and for four... I will revoke, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges irons. Now the people of Israel really didn't like the people of Damascus, not fans at all. So when Amos yells this out, for three sins, no, for four horrible things that Damascus has done wrong, I will not withhold my punishment. Everybody gets excited. They all come over. They're listening. They get in tight. Amos has their attention. And he goes on like this in chapter 1. On and on and on and on and on. Over and over through all of their neighbors that they dislike. He says, for three sins, no, for four sins of Gaza, I will not withhold my punishment. And everybody cheers. Yeah, get him. He says, for three sins, no, for four sins of Tyre. They go, yeah, get him. For three sins, for four sins of Edom. Yeah, get him. We hate Edom. And everybody's coming around. They're getting more and more excited for three sins and four sins of Moab. Yeah, we don't like Moab either. This is great. For three sins or four sins of Judah, which is their southern brothers who are also the people of God, who they really don't like, but they're not supposed to say they don't like them because they're kind of all related. So it's kind of like, yeah. Get him. And everybody's excited. And then he says, he pauses in my imagination. He pauses. And then he says, for three sins, no, four sins of you, Israel. God will not withhold his punishment. And I imagine at that point, the town square felt about like it does right now. Nobody's excited, nobody's cheering, and they're all very confused. As as Amos goes on in his book through chapter 2, he breaks down these three sins. And they're fascinating sins because of the other nations, like we read, with the first nation, 
with Damascus, they're threshing people with iron instruments. That means they're chopping people to bits with swords as if those people were corn. Right? This horrific, terrible thing. The sins of Israel are different. Amos in his book is going to lay out three. The first sin he's going to say is unfair economic practices that enslave people through debt. Unfair economic practices. That means their economy was set up in such a way that in order to afford basic needs, you had to borrow from other people. And if you couldn't pay back what you borrowed, you then became a forced employee of that other person. In essence, a slave of that other person because of your debt. And all the money you made and everything you did for your family went directly to them until your debt was paid off. That's the first sin of Israel. The second sin of Israel they talk about is ignoring the poor and the needy. In chapter 3, Amos has this beautiful image where he calls, beautiful image, he has this wild metaphor where he calls the image of Israel the cows of Bethshan who gorge themselves on wine while those around them suffer and go and want. So Amos is describing the society, the sins of Israel. They're not chopping people up with swords. They're not having civil wars. There's no visible genocide going on. They're enslaving people through debt. And they're ignoring the poor and the needy around them. And the third and final sin is they are worshiping other things through cultural practices than God. So to worship something else is called idolatry, right? And in the Old Testament, when we think about idolatry, what we think are these two gods that are mentioned all the time, Baal and Asherah. And what people would do is if you wanted a great harvest, if you wanted your field to go really, really great, you'd put up this giant golden bull, which represented Baal, And you'd go and you'd bring offerings to that bull. You'd bring fruit, you'd bring corn, and you'd put it in front of the bull. And the priests of Baal who worked for Baal would take that food, and that was kind of their payment for being a priest of Baal. And the idea was Baal was then going to give you a great crop. Or the other god that was popular in the Old Testament was a god named Asherah. She was fertility, and they they had a big pole in their backyard. And if you put the pole in your backyard, it meant you want Asherah to bless this house. Those were the outward forms of idolatry that were very cultural, mind you, right? These were everywhere. For us, it seems rare. Why in the world would you bring an offering to a giant golden bull? That seems very weird. For them, this was normal. There were other practices too, right? For example, if you wanted to impregnate your wife, you would go to the temple and you would sleep with a temple prostitute and that was supposed to give you blessing for fertility so that you could later impregnate your wife. And this was something that was normal for them to do. There are even more subtle ones that Amos pulls out. Like, for example, when the kingdoms divided, north and south, the temple, the place of worship where they went to have all of their religious parties, 
right, where they went to celebrate all of their feasts, things like Passover or the Feast of Booths, things you've probably talked about in here before. When they go to celebrate those, they would have to go to Jerusalem to do it. So when the north and south divided, the north built its own center of worship because they didn't want its people crossing the border four times a year for these festivals. So build its own center of worship. It says, now you guys worship here. Very political move, very strategic move. Amos says, do you understand that when you go there and you worship in this place that's full of these Baal cows and these Asherah poles, that you are devoting yourself or giving yourself allegiance to something else besides God? Right? So three sins of Israel. Enslavement through debt. Forgetting the poor and needy. And culturally, and I say culturally because it's these things that nobody else would notice or see in his time. Culturally, giving allegiance to something besides God. And the book of Amos, I got to tell you, when you read it on your own, it's not a happy book. He does not say wonderful, glowing things. One of the things he says to them right toward the end of chapter 5. He starts addressing some complaints they have because the people of Israel, they push back. They push back and they say, Amos, you're wrong. This is all okay, which seems weird to us. How can we be going to this weird religious building to sleep with a prostitute so that your wife can be impregnated? Be okay. But cultural things have justifications. And for them, there's two justifications, two things that they do that makes them say, this is all okay. The first thing they say, is that these, these things aren't visible. These are secret sins. Sure, we have this debt practice, but nobody really thinks about that or talks about that, right? We're not chopping people into pieces, Amos. We're not doing genocide, Amos. We're not at war. This stuff is hidden, and it's under the surface. And when things are hidden, and they're under the surface, and they're invisible, it allows us to justify them. When the sins are part of our cultural fabric, when they're just part of the way that we live life, they're easier for us to accept than when they're out loud. One justification, invisible sin. The second justification is that they are practicing all of this religious stuff. Sure, they might have a bunch of Baal cows around, and sure, there's a ton of Asherah poles around, and sure, they're enslaving people through debt, and sure, they're not taking care of the poor and needy, but they're going to synagogue every week, and they're learning the Bible, the Old Testament, like they're supposed to, and they're bringing their offerings, and they're putting their offerings in the church for the priests to have. They're burning the incense. That was a big deal back then. You burned incense to make. It was this fragrant smell that was supposed to make God happy. They're burning incense. Why isn't God happy with them? And in the end of chapter 5, Amos comes back and says, Listen, your incense stinks in God's nostrils, and your offerings taste horrible. Because for Amos that the sins are hidden and invisible and not outward doesn't make it okay, and that the sins are being paid for with religious practice doesn't make them okay. 
So at the end of chapter 5, Amos starts to alter an alternative. An alternative to this practice. This stinky religious practice that's supposed to make everything all right. And when I say stinky religious practice, what I want you to think of is stagnant water. Anybody here ever a Boy Scout? Yeah, we're few and, we're few and far between. Um, I was a Boy Scout. And when we went on on trips, especially as a little kid, you'd go on a hike and you'd get thirsty. And because I was a, a dumb second grader, third grader, if I saw a puddle on the ground, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to get something to drink. And I can remember my scout leader stopping me and saying, don't drink from random puddles. Because they'll make you sick. And the reason they'll make you sick is because the water is still. And when the water is still, bacteria and stuff has time and the ability to grow in it. Right? And if you've ever come upon a stagnant pond that doesn't have water coming in and out of it on a stagnant puddle, it stinks. It smells so bad. It smells rotten. And that's how Israel had become, because they were justifying what they did with it being invisible, and because they were justifying what they did as, hey, we're still practicing religious stuff. That's part of another part of life. They had become this stagnant water. So here is Amos's answer. It's in Amos chapter 5, verses, verse 24. Amos says, but let justice roll down like mighty waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If you want to get right with God, if you want to stop justifying your sins, you have to get on the move. You have to stop being stagnant water and start becoming moving water. Let justice roll down. Imagine in your head what Amos is painting here is the picture of this enormous, huge waterfall crashing water on the move, rolling down. Let justice roll down. And what is justice? When we talk about biblical justice, we're not necessarily talking about punishing somebody for the bad things they do, right? I mean, sometimes that's part of it, but that's not, that's just a minor, small part of biblical justice. And what is righteousness? Because Amos says, let righteousness flow like a never-ending stream. Picture in your head this massive gush of water coming from a fire hydrant that never runs out and is never shut off. Justice and righteousness. Justice is not just about punishing wrongdoings, and righteousness is not just about doing religious practices to appease a distant and far-off God. Justice is living in right relationship with everyone around us, and righteousness is living in right relationship with God. As Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God is making all things new, and we, when we give our lives over to him, are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And Paul calls this the ministry of reconciliation, making things right, putting them back 
to how they were supposed to be. So when we were created in the garden, we walked and talked with God. We had this intimate, personal relationship with him. Or like we read in that first verse today in Isaiah, relationship with God was this massive party. It was this huge banquet where we sat at the table with him and we knew him face to face. That's what we were created to be. That is righteous living. That is what our lives are supposed to be like. And in the garden, when we were created, it wasn't good for us to be alone. It was bad for us to be alone. And so God took Adam, the first person created, and he made him a partner or a helper or someone to do life with, to live in community with. That living together in pure love where we aid and help one another, that is justice. So we as the church, if we don't want to fall in the same path, as Israel, and find an Amos one day appearing on our doorstep and saying for three sins of the church, no, for four. We have to be people on the move, actively bringing reconciliation to the world around us. We have to be people creating just relationships in our lives and in our community where people in need, people who are hungry, people who are enslaved in debt, people who have given themselves to things that are not of God, where these people can find healing and wholeness through their relationships with us because we bring love that they've never seen before. And we bring righteousness into the world too, offering them this relationship with God that is less religious practice and more like a banquet at the table. That's our job, and that's what it means to let justice fall and righteousness flow. We reconcile the world to God and to one another. Or as Jesus said when he was asked, what is the most important thing I should do? Jesus, there are all these religious laws. All these books in the Old Testament full of rules and rituals that I'm supposed to follow. I need you to narrow it down to one for me. Can you tell me what the most important one is? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sit at the banquet table with God. Know him and let your relationship with him be a wild party. And the second is like it, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. Later, and Jesus will tell his disciples that greater love has no man than he who lays down his life for his neighbor. And this is what it means to be a Christ follower. If you're not already bringing reconciliation to your community, I'd encourage you to start because the tricky truth is that as Amos says, and has been my experience, justice comes first and righteousness comes second because it's in caring for the poor and needy, for those that are enslaved by the world around us. It's in caring for them that we meet God. The order is important.
So often we try to start with righteousness. I'm going to get to know God, and then once I'm strong enough in my relationship with God, then I'm going to start loving and helping other people. But it's actually the reverse. Get into the trenches and get your hands dirty with wild and reckless and messy love. And it's in those relationships that you will discover your need for God and who God's character actually is. So let me tell you a second how I've gotten into the trenches. I work for a group called Araminta. Actually, our fancy long name is the Araminta Freedom Initiative, which I know is a a mouthful. What we do at Araminta is we seek to end domestic minor sex trafficking in the city of Baltimore. Domestic. I know there's the myth out there from movies like Taken and from other publicity that all sex trafficking, kids being sold for sex, is international. The majority of sex trafficking in the United States is American kids being bought and sold by American people. This is a home problem, and it's invisible. Two quick stories, just to give you a feel for how it happens. Recently, I was talking to a social worker, and she was explaining to me that she has this kid who's in foster care, and the kid's always struggled to relate to whatever home she's in. She's in her older teens, and she's kind of bounced from home to home in Baltimore City. And one day the kid was coming home from school, from high school, and she was approached by a guy in the neighborhood. And the guy was commenting on her shoes, and he was commenting on the fact that she didn't have a phone, and he was commenting on her clothes. And he gave her a phone, and she thought that was amazing because no one had ever given her a phone before. And this relationship developed, and it got stronger and stronger, and she started calling him her boyfriend, and then he told her, you should leave your group home and come and live with me. And she knew, moving into the situation, that there would be one stipulation, and that stipulation would be that she brings home so much money a night. You get $500 a night, and you can come back into the house. That's how domestic minor sex trafficking happens. Because what we would call that guy, while she called him her boyfriend, what we call him is a trafficker, a slave trader, or a pimp. And what she doesn't know is that she has just entered into a life of being a trafficking victim. Doesn't always happen that way, though. There's another story I heard recently from a police officer at a conference. He shared a story about a young girl who was 14 whose mother had had a rough life and was struggling to pay their rent. And so the mother took the girl to an apartment complex where they lived, met up with the maintenance man of that apartment complex in the pool house. And once a month, the girl paid their rent in that pool house. Again, the mother has moved from being a mother to being a trafficker, a slave trader, or a pimp. And that girl's humanity is being challenged 
as she's being sold as a product. This is happening every day in our city. And I know it's invisible. I know it's not in front of your face. But it's real. It's real. The FBI says that there's between 100,000 and 300,000 kids a year in America, American kids a year under the age of 18 that are at risk for being trafficked. I've got a slide with a ton of statistics, if that comes up in a minute. I don't know. Um, I'm not going to read through them all because we've, we've talked a lot already. The average age that a girl goes into trafficking or a boy goes into trafficking is 13. It's a massive business. Last year, there was a study done in seven cities around the country. And what they did was they took traffickers, slave traders that are currently in jail for selling kids, and they had them estimate how much they made every year. And in seven cities around the country, they found it was... $103 million a year is what they're pulling down. Why the, in D.C. alone, it was 11588 I'm dyslexic, so I flipped numbers, so I wanted to look back at it. $11,588 a week selling children. This is real. And it's here, and I know it's invisible, and I know you can't see it. But it's real. So at Araminta, we've decided to stand in the way. We're only two years old. And really, the thought of Araminta started to be birthed four years ago when a group of people in a church in Baltimore, just like, much like you, got together and started to pray. They were made aware of the problem, and they started to pray, and they prayed, and they thought, and they dreamed in the path of this. How do we turn falling water onto this massive problem? How do we bring justice here? And through that season of prayer, Araminta was launched. We take our name from Harriet Tubman, who was a child slave in Maryland. Araminta was her given name. And if you know the story of Harriet Tubman, she was freed from slavery and then returned over and over and over again to Maryland to run the Underground Railroad where she freed other slaves after she was freed. So we take our name from her, hoping to free slaves in Maryland just like she did. We do that with four different arms right now. There's four ways that we're working in the city. We have uh, prevention and intervention teams. These teams do awareness training, kind of like I'm doing right now. Usually not as Bible heavy, but kind of like I'm doing right now. We train educators. We train counselors. We train social workers. Last week, I trained uh, on Sunday morning right at this time. I was helping train a staff of a hotel. Right? Anybody who's on the front lines that might see it up front might encounter victims in their everyday life, especially in schools or in the social work system in the city. We come and we provide training so that they will know how to cite it, know the indicators when they see them, and know how to report it. Second branch is called our Systemic Economic Deterrence Team, or we call it SAD because that's a really long and complicated name. 
What they do is they analyze the business of selling children and they try to figure out ways to make it expensive and difficult to do. Our third team is an aftercare team. We train people to mentor and serve as advocates for victims. So, and we do this with an organization called Turnaround, which you might've heard of, fantastic organization. We work with Turnaround, which is a, um, a walk-in shelter for women of domestic violence. And when they find a trafficking victim that's walked in because she's been hit or beat or just can't take it anymore, we provide that victim with a mentor who comes alongside them and says, hey, through this, let's find healing for you. And we provide also advocates so that if a teen is arrested, we have people who local law enforcement can call and say, hey, I'm pretty sure that this is a teen who's been trafficked and we want you to come next to them and help them through their processing. We want you to help them through their court date. We want you to help them through those things. So that's our third arm. Our fourth arm is what we call um, initiative strengthening teams. These teams, although they are less um, exciting in nature, they are at times the most important. For example, we have a prayer team that meets on Tuesday nights uh, once a month, and they pray over the problem because we recognize that nothing changes except in response to prayer. We have a research team that's constantly keeping all of our other teams informed. We have a social media team that does our communication these are just other ways that volunteers can serve. So what Araminta is really is right now we're 281 very concerned volunteers that are hoping to bring an end to this in the city. There are some ways that you can, if you've been touched and moved and you don't currently have a place that you're bringing justice, I know Dan is all about justice, so I'm sure that most of you guys are engaged in somewhere in your community, in your neighborhoods, bringing justice, which is the one of the reasons I've always loved you from afar. But if you don't, and something about this has pulled your heart today and tugged on your heartstrings and you want to get involved, there's some ways you can get involved right away. For example, if you think you see it in action, you think you encounter a kid or a teen who's being trafficked, um, yeah, when you act, when you suspect, act, and report, if you'll just go through that slide, there's a bunch of, I didn't mean for these to come out one at a time, just bring them all up at once. That's the human trafficking hotline. If you call it, they work with law enforcement all over the country, and they will open a case with that law enforcement if you report. So, for example, a friend who works off of Harford Road in Hamilton last week called me, and she said, hey, there's this weird spa that opened across the street. All the workers seem to be teenage girls, and all the clients seem to be men. She called. They opened the file, and the FBI responded to her almost within a couple of days. So it, if you see it, report it and call it. This number is also, I left some brochures on the back table. This number is also on the back table. If you see it, call it in. Um, Also, if you find somebody, if you see a victim who's in need of help, call Turnaround, and they'll take them in. And they'll start working with them, and they'll be able to get them the services that the victim needs. Um, And you can also always call local law enforcement uh, if you see anything happening that is directly illegal. But if you see it, report it. Don't let it stay invisible, and don't let it stay secret. Pump it out there. Second thing you can do is you can join us at Araminta. 
There's two ways you can join us. The first way is we have large events that kind of get people a taste of what we're doing. The first one coming up is a, we have a freedom night at the O's game on August 2nd. Last year, we had 900 people show up. Uh, we all rally together. It's also an awareness event for us that allows the community to know what's going on. We all wear the same t-shirts. You can grab those t-shirts and those tickets so that you can sit with all of Araminta together. Because if you go to the O's game, you buy your own ticket on August 2nd, you're going to be sitting somewhere else and it's not actually going to be, you'll see us from afar. It, it won't actually be a taste of Araminta. So if you want to get to know Araminta and who we are and what we do, uh, go to our website and get a ticket through us so you can sit in our big block seat. Um, we have other events like that coming up. In September, we hold an action night where you'll get to hear from some survivors who have walked through it um, and who are amazing people that are now serving as advocates for their, this mission. Uh, in October, we have a big worship night that's put on by a church for us in North Baltimore. Um, we have 67 church partners, and that we all come together as the Church of Baltimore uh, to worship God and to just declare to the city and to the Lord that not anymore, not on our watch, no kids sold here. Um, last way you can get involved is you can become one of our certified volunteers. We offer training three times a year. We don't just let anybody volunteer. You can't just jump onto a team. I know that after you hear a talk like this, you're like, oh, I want to be a mentor right now. Um, but there's a lot of training and preparation. Uh, you need to understand fully what you're getting into. So the initial level of volunteer training is 10 hours. We do it on four Thursdays, one Thursday a, uh, a week. And it is, um, that's the one coming up in October. Sometimes we do different nights. The one coming up in October will be four weeks in October. It'll be in the evening uh, after everybody's off of work. And um, you, by the time you're done with that, you will be fully equipped to volunteer on one of our teams. Other teams have further training, like being a mentor or an advocate actually has additional training on top of that. All that to say, thank you for letting me share my heart with you today. And I do hope that you will leave here on a mission to reconcile the world around you with God, that justice and righteousness, allowing justice to fall like a mighty waterfall and righteousness to flow like an unending stream to bring healing to our city and to bring God into our land. Let's pray together, and the worship team is going to come back up. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just confess that we are undeserving of your forgiveness. And that, Father, to say for three sins of us, no for four, is actually far too small. We just confess that now, Lord. Lord, we just confess that there are ways that we sin that we don't even know. Lord, we just ask. We ask, Father, that you would make us new, that you would change our lives and shape our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would show us daily ways when we can bring justice to our city, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to be people, Father, who are called by your name and bring your love into situations making the world right. 
Lord, I pray for the trafficking victims of our city. I pray for freedom, Father. We surrender ourselves to you now. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who loves and hears our prayers. It's in your name we pray. Amen.